You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, and thank you all for joining us today at the U.S. Institute of Peace for this discussion. After COP27, where, what's next for South Asia? My name is Thamana Salikuddin. I'm Director for South Asia Programs here at USIP. USIP is this country's national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to a proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for US and global security. Earlier this month, nations of the world came together for the 27th UN Conference of the Parties, better known as COP27, where a set of wide-ranging issues related to global climate change are discussed. This year, however, the most prominent topics uh, of discussion were really climate justice, climate financing, loss and damage, issues that usually don't take center stage at these annual meetings. And it is my great privilege to be joined today by Ambassador Dan Feldman, a good friend, uh, and has a lot of personal insight, both on, I think, climate change, but specifically on South Asia. And so we're really interested, Dan, for you today to be providing your reflections on how COP27 uh, affects South Asia particularly, but how this COP27 was different maybe from previous uh, meetings on climate change. Um, Dan is uh, ambassador, was ambassador and U.S. special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan at the Department of State. And most recently, Ambassador Feldman was chief of staff and counselor to Secretary John Kerry when he was appointed the first special presidential envoy for climate. As part of uh, Special Envoy Kerry's team, he helped drive the U.S. government's international climate agenda, coordinating high-level interagency policymaking, engaging with corporate stakeholders, and contributing to key bilateral and multilateral climate discussions, including last year's summit. So you were at COP26. It'll be interesting <laughs> uh, to hear the differences between Glasgow and Sharm el-Sheikh. Currently, Ambassador Feldman is partner at Covington and Burling, where his practice focuses on environmental social and governance counseling, business and human rights, global public policy, and international regulatory compliance. Uh, he's a member of Covington's P Global Problem Solving Initiative. So hopefully you can help us yes. solve some of these tough problems. Lots of problems to be solved. Yes. Well, welcome, Dan. I, I'm very excited. We have an online audience with us today. We'll have a conversation on a range yeah, of questions, great. and we invite you all online uh, to send us your questions on usip.org or using the hashtag SouthAsiaClimate. So, Dan, I'm very curious. You've been so involved both in South Asia and on climate. You were at COP26 and now at COP27. In your sense, how has the discussion around climate change you know, differed? How has it grown and changed? But also, what does it mean for countries in the global south, and particularly for South Asia, how, where there's a lot of climate fragility. Yeah. So these discussions were particularly important for them. I welcome your observations. Good. Well, thanks very much, Tamana. It's wonderful uh, to be back here at USIP. Um, it's been such an integral uh, force in uh, convening and the analysis on South Asia and the region for so many years. It was uh, an enormously valuable partner, both when I was in government um, 
focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan, but, uh, but also on climate issues. So thanks for uh, continuing the relationship and having me back here. Um, as you noted, I was uh, at COP26 last year, helping to uh, basically lead the U.S. delegation with Secretary Kerry. Uh, there were several hundred um, USG participants last year, primarily um, from the State Department, but the, a real whole of government uh, effort in terms of uh, close to a dozen uh, agencies represented, many at the, at the secretarial level, and it was a very consequential COP last year. Um, this year I was there as a private sector uh, member uh, in our practice, um, in our legal practice at Covington, uh, where I co-chaired the ESG efforts. There's increasingly um, a focus on these issues by a whole range of multinational mm -hmm. companies, many of them represented there, and that was, I think, one significant aspect about this, about this COP and where COPs are headed in the future. Um, let me let me lay a little bit of, mm -hmm. of groundwork first in terms of what it was meant to be and what it wasn't meant to be. Um, it was never going to be as significant a COP as last year's mm -hmm. for a variety of uh, reasons, uh, kind of very unique to the cadence and tempo of the way COPs run. So um, the Paris Agreement came out of uh, COP uh, 21 in 2015. At that time, they talked about a five-year ratchet where, where, where this would be reviewed. Mm -hmm. And the Paris Agreement is what um, originated these nationally determined contributions, which, com which, which countries would uh, develop as they sought to meet the climate goals, which mm -hmm. at Paris were well under a goal of uh, two degrees Celsius rise from industrial level, and which at COP26 last year, uh, with U.S. leadership, we've kind of helped to recalibrate uh, to ensure that we were trying to keep global warming to 1.5 C mm. alive. That is mm -hmm. that is the goal in terms of what the science tells us that we can live with. Every tenth of a degree over that leads to um, you know, extremely dire, uh, serious climate uh, uh, events. Um, and we're already seeing that. And the estimates are that we're already at about 1.1. So mm -hmm. the goal was really to keep to 1.5 and what countries would do uh, to ensure that they were working towards a, um, a net zero goal by mid-century. Mm -hmm. And the steps they were undertaking now in these next few years to make sure that they could actually achieve that and keep on track for that. So that was a five-year period after 2015. There was no COP in 2020. Mm -hmm. So Glasgow was that first five-year period. Um, there was enormous focus on it because, as well, they had missed a year. There was enormous focus because the U.S. was back at the table after leaving Paris in the Trump administration. So the importance of U.S. leadership was very um, uh, acute uh, last year in Glasgow. Um, uh, and, uh, and there were still significant negotiations around key aspects that had to be worked out. So the Paris rule book negotiations mm -hmm. uh, were finally concluded last year. And there was a, a, a very significant um, announcement in the, in the final agreement about this uh, phase down of unabated coal uh, use last year. This year, um, none of those things were on the table. So um, we know we knew going into it that in part um, because the Global South had um, focused for so many years on this loss and damage issue, what were the, um, uh, how you know, could their needs better be met by marshalling resources um, and developing some sort of compensation mm -hmm. for these you know, significant loss and damage events. Um, 
they had been trying to get this on the agenda for many, many years unsuccessfully. And because it was hosted by Egypt and was therefore an Africa cop mm -hmm. with many of the most vulnerable nations in Africa, obviously many in, in uh, South Asia as well, um, this desire to make sure that loss and damage was adequately addressed was previewed as one of the more significant mm -hmm. aspects of it. Um, and against this backdrop, you've had these extreme weather events of the last of year, the, um, the historic, just devastating floods, obviously, in Pakistan, um, but also events in Nigeria, in mm -hmm. China, in Europe, in the US. Um, you know, we're seeing this increasingly all over. All over. Right. Um, and so the need became much more acute to, to try to develop this. You also had these headwinds of the Ukraine invasion mm -hmm. um, and what that did to global energy markets. And so at the moment that uh, that countries were trying to develop a net zero, uh, a path to net zero, there was suddenly an over-reliance on fossil fuels mm -hmm. again, which took us in the wrong direction, um, at least hopefully just, just temporarily. Um, and so there's a range of kind of key issues on climate finance, on climate adaptation, um, on mitigation, most importantly, that are all being queued up uh, for next year's COP, which will mm. be in Dubai. So we weren't sure exactly what would come out of, out of this year. Um, it was a, uh, as we wrote in our, our kind of summary of it uh, right afterwards, it was a flawed but still quite consequential mm -hmm. COP in large part because of what was ultimately done with loss and damage. Mm -hmm. So um, the global south and kind of significant tensions with the, with the global north did manage to get it on the agenda in the opening days of COP mm -hmm. um, for the first time ever. And now that it was on the agenda, it means that it will likely permanently be on the agenda. Right. So this will be now part of the annual discourse in terms of what's mm -hmm. needed. Um, what was very unclear is um, and there were caveats to it being on the agenda, including that it would not ish, uh, deal with issues of liability mm. um, uh, in particular, which is what the, the mm -hmm. Global North is, is most concerned about. Um, what was less clear is whether there would be an actual fund that emerged from it. Um, there's been a commitment since, uh, since Paris to try to um, uh, galvanize as much finance as necessary mm -hmm. for those who need it, up to $100 billion a year. That was supposed to have been done you know, by 2020, and mm -hmm. it, we're still not there yet. Getting closer, um, we're, depending how you count the, you know, count funding, it's, it's probably hovering in the low 90, um, but it, we're not at the $100 billion level mm -hmm. yet. There's commitments on adaptation that haven't yet been met. And so the idea was, do we need a, and is it most effective to have yet another new fund and how will this mm -hmm. actually work? And real concern by the Global North, what happened in the closing days is that there was an announcement that there would be a fund. It was brokered um, mostly by the EU, which came out in the last 48 hours and through its support uh, for it. And then ultimately um, the US uh, and others also said they supported it. Mm -hmm. But the devil will be in the details. Right. And so that's what we don't really have to talk about yet. Um, and they committed to putting together a technical committee that will start meeting next year. And then many of these details will hopefully be hammered out um, at next year's COP in Dubai. Um, but these are really difficult questions. Mm. What countries um, will pay into this? What countries will be able to take advantage of it? How much money will there be? How will it be administered? In what sorts of activities? And it's hard to imagine 
that there will be a whole lot of new funding for mm. something like this. And especially in the US where we've very successfully quadrupled the amount of climate finance um, that we've been able to contribute in since the beginning of the Biden administration. We're now up to a commitment of about $11 billion for FY24. But that, it will be very hard to get beyond that, especially yeah. with now a Republican House. Um, and so whether money will have to be moved from one fund to another to help contribute to mm -hmm. this or find some other ways, um, I think is, is going to be quite difficult. That's on the loss and damage piece. And that's sure. certainly the most consequential piece. And I think of note, the conversation just changed dramatically around that. I mean, this was something that we weren't really even talking about in any mm -hmm. sort of official way. And even at the beginning days of COP, it seemed um, unlikely that there would be a fund. So the fact uh, that this was actually announced was seen as a significant win um, by, the, by the Global South. In other ways, it really fell short of what we needed right now. Mm -hmm. um, the science, I mean, is demonstrated by the climate events of this past year, but the science um, uh, as uh, put out by kind of the, the key UN entities and bodies assessing this are all ringing the alarm bells mm -hmm. um, about what we need to do to reduce emissions. And the best way that we can reduce emissions is to uh, cut CO2 use, particularly mm -hmm. coal, but also other core fossil fuels, and expedite um, and accelerate the path to renewables and to non-fossil fuels. And that has to be done much, much more rapidly. And the world is really not on pace for that. So to do that more, uh, there was an effort, for example, to say that we needed to peak all uh, coal and fossil fuel use by 2025. Mm -hmm. And that did not make it into the final agreement. Um, countries were asked to come with a more accelerated NDC, Nationally Determined mm -hmm. Contribution Plan, and only about 30 did. Right. Um, and, uh, and though we estimate now that roughly two thirds of the world's GDP is aligned with that 1.5 C goal, mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, there are some really tough nuts to crack that remain not aligned with that. And, uh, and we did not see much progress in, in, in those areas. So at the very moment that we need to really accelerate, I mean, having a 2050 goal, net zero goal is great, but if you're not on track by 2030, there's no way that you can keep that alive. And to be on track by 2030 means taking policy and regulatory right decisions now. now. I mean, mm. this is, the year. These are the few months that are actually going to be critically important. And that sense of urgency uh, did not come out of this cup. Very interesting. I mean, I think your comments about loss and damage are, are really interesting in that loss and damage is sort of the thing that everyone's touting as the big accomplishment of this COP. Uh, and yet, you know, there isn't a timeline for oper opera uh, operationalizing the funds or how the funds would be received or who gets them. And all of that is technical details that hopefully will be done by next year. But I, I want to pull back and uh, think about what does this actually mean for South Asia? The countries in South Asia are particularly vulnerable to climate change and climate related crises as we're seeing flooding in Pakistan, but elsewhere as well, droughts and flooding in India. You know, when you talk about uh, countries being ready to meet that 2050 goal and to treat this as the crisis that the science shows it is, what was your sense uh, from the South Asian countries at COP? Um, how are they preparing? Are they prepared? Are they taking this seriously? Or are they only relying on sort of loss and damage and the money that will come in 
uh, from elsewhere. I mean, what are they doing internally to really think about this crisis? So there's traditionally been several key pillars of mm -hmm. the COPS, and, and most people think of it, had, had thought of it to date as mitigation, the efforts mm -hmm. to get countries um, to reduce emissions uh, to align with 1.5 as much as possible, and then adaptation, the kind mm -hmm. of resiliency aspect. So um, building seawalls, developing advanced warning um, uh, systems for climate events. Um, and now we've added loss and damage to this. Mm -hmm. um, what ties all those together is going to be climate finance because mm -hmm. there are also estimates that came out um, that have been coming out fairly regularly, but some very significant ones came out just in advance of COP, which suggests that we need to be spending upwards of $4 trillion a year mm -hmm. for many years to come to be able to actually galvanize the um, investments in new technology and to keep 1.5 alive. And we're, what governments can do is just drop in the bucket mm -hmm. of that ultimately. Mm -hmm. So that can only be done by engaging the private sector mm -hmm. and making them a part of that. And that's one of the reasons why the, I think the, the very robust private sector delegations there were, were important. And I, I, I think a real positive um, uh, signal about where the private se sector sees itself mm -hmm. in the coming years, although also fraught with issues. Right. How do you, um, how is there transparency and accountability for what right. they're actually doing? What are allegations of greenwashing? And so sure. how do you work, th work through all these issues? For South Asia, I, I hope that now that the loss and damage fund has been established, that, um, uh, that it will be uh, funded in the way that's needed, and, and certainly there are many countries in the region, as you know, most dramatically uh, represented by Pakistan this past year, that would really need that mm -hmm. um, uh, that assistance. By the same token, I think it's really taking advantage of the adaptation aspect mm. that's going to be particularly important for some of these countries. So ensuring that they have systems in place, uh, communications, pilot projects, um, working on a whole range of agricultural efforts, uh, engaging um, uh, women and others in, in, in the countries through environmental justice initiatives. Um, there's a whole range of other programs that mm -hmm. hopefully they will be able to be um, to be able to better leverage. Right. Um, and some of them have done um, quite a good job on this already. Yeah. Um, there's the Global North is trying to make as many funds available in different ways as possible for some of these, mm -hmm. but it's still a slow process. Mm -hmm. And then against the backdrop of that, we have to make sure that we continue the mitigation efforts as best as possible. Um, because without those mitigation efforts, the adaptation needs and the loss and damage needs are just going to grow exponentially yeah. and you can't meet those. So you've, we've got to try to be doing all these things at the same time. In, in the region, the only country that's in the top 20 emitters is India. And mm. so continuing to work very closely with, with India, India. Um, uh, on their efforts um, will be very important. In other countries, I, I traveled to India last year with Secretary Kerry for one of his trips. He's been there now several mm -hmm. times, um, meeting with Prime Minister Modi and others about the initially 4,500 megawatt, now it's mm -hmm. up to uh, uh, 5,000 um, effort to, um, uh, uh, or gigawatt effort to uh, uh, put renewables um, on the grid by, by 2030. Um, if there 
actually able to keep to that commitment, mm -hmm. that would align them with 1.5. But there's enormous needs uh, in terms of financing those efforts mm. to help them to, to get there. And in the, in the meantime, they have one of the most significant coal pipelines right. still. So after China, they're the, the, next, the, the, most, next, yeah. the next biggest. So this is going to be quite important. And then, but then with countries across the region. So when we were in India last April, we also were able to um, make a quick trip to Bangladesh, um, uh, talking about mitigation issues there, but also a whole mm -hmm. range of adaptation efforts mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that a broad swath of our um, interagency is involved in, whether it's USAID or TDA or DFC or others. There are very kind of creative programs increasingly focused on adaptation. And one of the goals um, out of out of COP uh, has been doubling the amount of mm. funding that is going specifically to adaptation. Very interesting. I want to drill down a little bit on India. I mean, India, as you mentioned, is the largest emitter in South Asia, but it's also, you know, welcomed loss and damage. It has announced that it has a plan to reach net zero by 2070. And it is, you know, the United States' strongest partner in the region. It's part of the Quad. It's part of IPEF. All of these things have a climate agenda within them. How do you, how does the U.S. government envision cooperation with India to further mitigation and our other climate um, goals, both obviously in India, but in the broader Indo-Pacific region. I mean, has India been able, are we on the same page with them? What are the things we're doing and where can we be doing more? Yeah, so from the very outset of the Biden administration, when Secretary Kerry came in as the first special presidential envoy, he really laid out a goal uh, to try to drive the mitigation agenda as best mm -hmm. as possible. And that really meant um, working particularly with the 20 top emitters in the world, which are responsible for over 80% of the mm -hmm. world's emissions. So China is number one at over 30%, estimates around 32%. Um, the US uh, is number two, but about 11% and dropping. We're, mm -hmm. we're cutting our emissions. The EU, if you count it collectively, is about the same, but any member state is only mm -hmm. about one or 2%. And then you have India at about 7%, mm -hmm. and those emissions are rising. Um, after that, you have Russia at about 5%, and then a series of other countries around 2 3%, mm -hmm. um, but which are significant, and some of them are, um, are quite difficult. Brazil, until the recent elections uh, in that category, Mexico, uh, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, Australia, until the recent elections. So each country, Indonesia, each country uh, has their own set of challenges of in course. terms of how they would... Mm -hmm actually align with, with 1.5. But uh, given India's importance on this, this was uh, the developing that relationship um, and, um, and further strengthening, mm -hmm. it was, was very critical to Secretary Kerry from his first days. And it was, as I said, one of the first countries that he visited, even in the midst of COVID lockdowns mm -hmm. uh, in April 21 of last year, again in September, um, and has made other trips there. Um, as I said, the the commitment um, for the 4,500 or, or, or now 5,000 uh, gigawatts would al keep them aligned with 1.5. Mm. But at the same time, they're continuing coal use right. and uh, a, a reliance on, on fossil fuels. They've done s 
some things very, very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really are developing significant renewable energy mm -hmm. um, uh, efforts. The um, what they've put into issues like solar um, and uh, some wind and some other kind of traditional renewables mm -hmm. is, um, is 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 very significant and should be a model. But their needs are also so great yeah. that we'll need to continue to try to marshal finance efforts for there. And so we've talked quite a bit um, with uh, within our own interagency, mm -hmm. the types of projects that we could help contribute to, as well as with uh, key partners globally. And this is where I think, you know, India is being part of the quad. Uh, mm. The climate was one of the three pillars, key yeah. pillars of the, yeah. of the initial quad discussions and continues to be. And we'll continue to try to use that and, and, and leverage it more. Um, uh, other kind of regional architecture, including with Israel and mm -hmm. the UAE at this point, as well as with the U.S. And there's been some very kind of creative, dynamic pro projects uh, recently announced between Israel, Jordan, mm. UAE on mm -hmm. on desalinized water for solar, and mm -hmm. and but but great interest from the region that I think um, uh, they're also looking at significant investment opportunities out of the Gulf and out of, out of the, mm -hmm. the broader region in, in India. Um, and then trying to create the environment to, um, uh, to bring down their coal use and hopefully limit it more. It's, it's interesting that last year, uh, in last year's COP26, it was uh, China with India that changed the final mm -hmm. language from a phase out to a phase down of coal. Mm -hmm. This year, um, India supported a phase down of all fossil fuels, um, although that didn't make it into the, right. into the final text. But, um, but it's, a, it's a critical partner. Of course. But with a number of continuing challenges. And, yeah. uh, and, and certainly the view of the US is the way uh, to address those is through continued engagement. So we set up any number of partnerships mm -hmm. um, throughout the interagency to continue to foster this. There's been very good working relationships um, through our energy department with counterparts, um, through USAID, through, um, through certainly obviously through, through the State Department. Um, and so I think the, the breadth and depth of those interagency partnerships and the way that um, energy and particularly focus on clean energy and, and ensuring the finance is there for clean energy is going to continue to be a real hallmark of the relationship. Mm, very interesting. I want to move to Pakistan. So the floods earlier this year in Pakistan really drew attention to the you know, dangers of climate change, climate conflict within uh, the region. But I think Pakistan was a, a huge driving force behind the effort on the loss and damage fund. They very much welcomed that. Um, but, but during your tenure as SRAP, you had the opportunity to visit Pakistan in the 2010 floods, which were you know, devastating. Um, and, and Secretary, then Secretary Kerry, when we, he was uh, there, he was one of the first high-level visits uh, to Pakistan. What do you see as the difference? When we're talking about mitigation, what are the things between 2010 and now? Is Pakistan ready for the next climate crisis? What does it need to be doing? Are there better ways for the international community to be helping Pakistan um, to prepare? Because it's not if, it's when yeah. the next climate crisis is coming. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, uh Certainly, one of the trips I remember uh, extremely well because of just seeing the devastation um, so firsthand. At that point, actually, 
uh, it was then Senator Kerry, who mm. was chair of the of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, uh, Ambassador Holbrook was still the special representative. Mm -hmm. I was his deputy. It, um, it was occurring in summer of 2010, and I was uh, yanked from a family vacation and went out uh, <laughs> with, our, with Senator Kerry um, as a first um, high-level U.S. Mm. Uh, delegation to tour the floods um, and to help deliver mm -hmm. the initial tranche of, of U.S. assistance. Um, and we flew by helicopter over Multan, over large areas of squalled rivers, and it was, um, it, it, it was very, very sobering. Um, mm -hmm. What I think, and, and with the caveat that I haven't stayed, you know, particularly involved on Pakistan issues since I, since I left that role in 2015, um, what I think Pakistan did very well then, and again, seemingly quite well after these just historic flooding, which impacted such an enormously high percentage of mm -hmm. the Pakistan population, is in the initial relief and uh, mm -hmm. providing of humanitarian assistance. Um, I think the, uh, the interagency civ mill cells that were set up, the distribution of assistance, um, the, the, you know, the initial response on camps, mm. I mean, they're, they're uh, uh, supplying food. Um, I think all of that Pakistan can do quite well. Mm -hmm. um, I think where there are obviously need to be much more focus and energy going forward is how do you, how do they put together an action plan and a system that uh, helps address this preemptively? So mm -hmm. are the um, communication systems in place? Mm -hmm. Are there early warning systems? How, what is the relationship like between the federal and provincial and local governments on, on much of this? Are the adaptation measures in place mm -hmm. on um, uh, that help to address agricultural needs? Mm -hmm. uh, is there adequate weather tracking? I mean, there yeah. any, any number of, of things, which I think will not just be Pakistan. I think every virtually every country in the world is going to have yes. to deal with that. I think the estimates are that over 3 billion of the world's current population lives in areas that are significantly climate impacted. Um, but we will all need to do this um, much more um, comprehensively, much mm. more systemically, much more preemptively, mm -hmm. because this is going to happen again. I mean, when right? we when we toured in 2010, the sense was this was a once, once in a in century, a once yeah. in a you know millennium uh, occasion. Clearly, when it's much worse, just 12 years later, right. Uh, that belies that, and we have to plan for this now on a on a much more regularized mm -hmm. basis. So, uh, my understanding, just from uh, hearing Pakistani political right. leadership and military leadership, is they recognize this has to be done, but the proof will be in the pudding in terms of what's actually developed and implemented. And obviously, it's hard to do at the moment that you're still dealing with the immediate after effects and the. Urgency of the now takes mm. over from the planning for the future, but we we know that this will occur now. We're in a world where these events will happen, and given Pakistan's geography, it seems like it will be particularly impacted by this. So um, let's try to ensure that we can invest in these adaptation efforts 
uh, to forestall the worst of the loss and damage needs. No, of course. And I think it's very interesting that you're talking about this is not just a Pakistan problem. This is so many countries are vulnerable. And I think, you know, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, uh, they're all countries that are highly vulnerable, uh, susceptible to the impact of climate change. And at COP27 specifically, these three countries were recognized by UNEP for innovative community level mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, um, adaptation efforts. And I think that's a really important thing that the community level is where we start. Um, but whether it's floods or droughts or other severe related uh, disasters, is there a systemic way for these countries to cooperate? Is there something that the US can do to help them? Or are there regional forums, pathways for cooperation? Obviously one might be SARC, but is the Quad uh, or some other format uh, a good way to help them uh, cooperate? Because they're facing many of the similar sure. uh, challenges. Well, in, in our in our time working in government together, we often refer to <laughs> this region as the least integrated yes. region of the world. And yes. I think, unfortunately, that probably remains the case. Um, so uh, clearly the regional architecture is necessary there. In terms of what's the best vehicle for that, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but I know that the, um, I, was, I was just looking through some of the announcements that President Biden made when he, um, when he spoke at, at COP. And if you um, are interested, it's a very good lay down of what the mm. US has done to date, as well as some of the key initiatives. Mm -hmm. But there was a significant effort um, uh, emphasis there on what we would be doing on adaptation with the PREPARE program in particular, um, as well as unleashing um, uh, potential resources from a range of interagency. Mm -hmm. And so there was even just a fact sheet from the TDA about specific programs it was mm -hmm. doing in Pakistan and Bangladesh and um, uh, in India. Uh, pilot projects, um, uh, contingency planning, um, mm. scoping of potential, you know, there's, there's, there are, um, there's a lot of thinking and trying to marshal resources to address these on a bilateral basis. But then I think it will likely fall to the region to figure out in some part what the, what the regional architecture is that mm. can best that can best improve that but i think that that would be a, a, an area that the uh that the global north would be quite interested in in, in helping to foster mm. um and and facilitate because i do think those linkages um will be important in developing best practices economies of scale and these global events obviously are not limited to national uh, geographic of course. boundaries. No. So, um, uh, and this is a case we frequently make to those who are still um, emitting quite a bit as well and who say, <coughs> well, we need this to reach our own level of development. But the fact is, it's a global amount at this point. So, um, uh, yes, we understand the case that the U.S. and other developed nations had the ability mm -hmm. to emit as they did as they were industrializing. We don't have that luxury at this no. point. And there's real opportunities in transitioning to a renewable future that this can be real economic engines as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, this provides enormous new opportunities um, as we move to not only traditional solar, wind, nuclear, but next generation issues mm. on battery life, on green hydrogen, on a, on a range of other mm. very innovative uh, uh, kind of technologies that um, I think can revolutionize this and where there's potentially 
a lot of money to be made sure. as well as as well as helping to change the trajectories sure. of these of these countries. I, I want to build on that point. So the technologies and the options for the future. You you mentioned the private sector played a very prominent role at COP27. I mean, some companies are really making efforts to be more responsive to environmental concerns, but there was a lot of greenwashing and a lot of concerns about you know sure. um, fossil fuel companies being at COP27, but. I want to ask you in practical terms, what can both international but also regional and domestic um, corporations in South Asia, what role can they play uh, to, to really actually where the rubber meets the road on, on climate change effects? I, I think there's enormous opportunity and potential mm -hmm. for real work. As I said, um, you know, the estimates of the investments that have to be made mm -hmm. and the trillions of dollars annually are just mm -hmm. nothing that is even in the ballpark of what we're talking about for mm -hmm. government's um, uh, ability to, to, to allocate, to appropriate, and, and, and to spend. So it really has to be carried forward by, by the private sector. But you're right, the, the issue then is, you know, how do you ensure that this is real, tangible, implementable, accountable mm. progress? Um, and that will rely on, um, transparency more I think more than anything in terms of companies sharing what they're actually doing being open to that engaging with a range of stakeholders um, and having some sort of kind of accountability mechanisms but this this impacts virtually every Everybody. sector yeah. out there I mean um, mm. the yes there were extractive uh, companies represented at, at cop um, some of them who are really trying to diversify mm. um, perhaps others who are not and just hoping to get um, uh, the credit credit for being there. But um, look at agribusiness companies mm. and uh, how the whole mm -hmm. agricultural uh, landscape is, is shifting so much and what that means. Um, look at transportation companies. There was a launch of a green shipping corridor uh, initiative uh, at COP this year. Um, uh, but also, you know, uh, things like um, our sustainable aviation fuels and for airlines. Um, mm -hmm. There was the launch, uh, uh, President Biden and Secretary Kerry last year helped launch the First Movers Coalition, mm. um, which is now about 50 or 60 of the major multinationals, but in particularly hard to debate sectors like construction and mm. shipping and aviation. Um, financial services firms in terms of uh, uh, marshalling their resources to invest in mm -hmm. companies that believe in, in ESG. In virtually any way you can find um, a role for the private sector, and it's, it's going to be an ongoing conversation about what they're actually doing, how they're engaging, what mm -hmm. the impact ultimately is. Um, but there's real, um, there's both a, both a need and I think a desire uh, to help on this in key parts mm -hmm. of the private sector. Very interesting. And, and connecting it to the countries who are you know, in acute economic crisis, Sri Lanka first among them in, in South Asia, but definitely Pakistan and other countries, they're facing these economic stresses. And when they go to multilateral institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, how is, what is the way to balance the, their immediate needs, right, their economic crises, and the need for continued investment on climate change? I mean, there's some talk of changes at the IMF, at World Bank, to actually balance this. What, what are your thoughts on it, and how far along is this conversation? It, it was really aired and on the table mm. at this COP, and I think will continue to be a key area of focus on this, the issue of MDB reform mm -hmm. um, and... Um, 
uh, and how it can better align itself with what the climate needs are. And obviously, mm. for key countries, as you mentioned, to access that will be mm -hmm. quite important. Um, I think the general sense is that some of the, um, the, the regional banks are doing better, mm. um, uh, including the ADB. Interesting. Um, but that it's, uh, that it's lagging at, at the World Bank and elsewhere. Mm. And so there was, um, I think, a, a real effort to push some of the key MDBs further on this and Good. to have it as part of the agenda. And hopefully that will continue to bear fruit and certainly something that um, that the U.S. interagency and, and mm -hmm. led by Secretary Yellen has been um, has has been uh, quite focused on as well. So you see, there may be progress by the next COP, or it's slower we, than that. I think anything that takes place within an MDB setting is unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately uh, maybe too slow for some of these countries. Bit slow, but it, but it's but but the recognition of the need for action is there, hmm. and I think the I, I would hope that um, there's some significant action on that front by, by COP28. Great. I'm going to turn to, we have some great audience yeah, yeah. questions, and I invite everybody online to please uh, send us your questions at usip.org or using our hashtag, uh, South Asia Climate. Uh, we have a, a really interesting question about China and the Indo-Pacific. You know, what is the role, the greater focus, obviously, of the U.S. on the Indo-Pacific? How can we see the region of the Indo-Pacific and the Quad working on climate change, and is there any role for China? How do we actually um, manage China and China's impact on climate change in the region? Um, I'm so glad you asked that because it was one of the things I had actually meant to flag at the very outset yeah. um, in terms of what had been accomplished uh, uh, at COP27 and, and, and hadn't yet. But as I said, from the very opening days of the administration, Secretary Kerry was quite focused on the world's biggest emitters, and obviously China with um, 32, 33 percent mm -hmm. of the world's emissions is the most important to, to engage. And you know, between the China, between China and the U.S., we're approaching 50 percent of mm -hmm. the world's emissions. So there has to be a dialogue right. between those two countries. Right. Um, if there's not, um, and if China can't meet a net zero goal by mid-century, it's more 2055, I think, or 2060 in their in their five-year plans. But if they can't, then there's no way that the world stays on course for a 1.5 future. So there has to be that. And so Secretary Kerry, despite all the other turbulence in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship over the last year and a half, has, um, with the support of the administration, has sought to ensure that there was a channel that could still speak about climate and try to accomplish mm -hmm. something here. Um, and that uh, was um, in the midst of COVID last year and with Chinese lockdown. Secretary Kerry went there twice mm. um, and retained an ongoing conversation with his Chinese counterpart, um, Xie Jinhua, who he had known for many years since um, uh, in all the years working on climate and the international mm. stage together. Mm -hmm. So last year, um, there was uh, there were some significant announcements, including um, from when Secretary Kerry visited China at one point, and they put out a, 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 a joint statement on this. Um, and culminating in the announcement in Glasgow last year where they would form a methane working group together. Mm. China did not 
become a signatory of the Global Methane Pledge, mm -hmm. but as the world's greatest emitter of methane as well, they did commit to developing this um, uh, 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 an action plan, a work plan together together with the U.S. last year in Glasgow. There were also some other significant uh, announcements last year by China, including mm -hmm. when President Xi announced at UNGA last year that China would um, uh, would stop funding uh, coal internationally, mm. but did not say anything about continued funding of coal domestically, mm -hmm. nor commit to an earlier peaking date of the reliance on coal or fossil fuels mm. before what they, what they currently have. So there were some significant announcements, but not still likely enough to make sure that we're on track for 1.5. After Glasgow last year, the given the turbulence in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China, mm. uh, there wasn't nearly as much conversation as, as we had all hoped. Yeah. Um, and, so, um, and so what was significant at Sharm el-Sheikh this year is that given the, uh, the conversation that President Biden and President Xi had uh, uh, in Bali, that they were able to reopen climate discussions as well. And that is just a, a critical channel uh, to ensure that we uh, try to uh, keep every effort alive of meeting, mm, meeting 1.5. We have some great questions coming in. Um, South Asia's climate change adaptation will depend in large part on water cooperation from source to sea, um, i.e. cooperation with China. What regional progress did COP27 make in this area? Was this even discussed in terms of uh, water cooperation and ad adaptation? Uh, I don't know enough mm. about that. I, it, it, COP is a, um, I mean, there were, there were <laughs> 45,000 um, yes. uh, official delegates there. Um, and it was, it's an, it's an inherently chaotic um, mm. environment. And, uh, and I think even more so this year because the logistical challenges of doing of it in a place like Charm were quite, were quite hard. So, mm. um, there were undoubtedly water conversations, sure. um, but whether they were part of official dialogues or, or not, not or anything else, I, of course. I couldn't tell you. Uh, I wanted, um, there's a question on climate-induced migration, and this is something we at USIP care a lot about because you know, South Asia has a, a high level of climate-induced yeah. migration, and it leads to conflict, obviously. Um, but were there any discussions specific, and I don't think migration was a real focus of COP27, but were there any discussions on small island states and forced migration as island nations in the Indian Ocean become increasingly susceptible so, to submersion in the coming years? I mean, this is something that you hear in the Maldives, Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, parts of these countries are going to be just unlivable, right? Yes. And you're having forced migration. Uh, is there any thought, whether it was at COP, but within the U.S. government, on how we are going to be working with these countries in terms of uh, this forced migration? Yeah, certainly enormous emphasis, especially mm. on some of the small island states mm -hmm. that, um, and, and others that you referenced. And, um, uh, and there's... Uh, so I think the, the, the loss and damage piece mm. will certainly um, is, 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 is meant to in part provide for mm -hmm. some of the needs of this, but how that will actually um, uh, be operationalized, I think, in terms of what that means for, yeah. for climate refugees is, is still to be determined. Um, there is an increasing talk about that, both refugees and I think probably more accurately IDPs mm -hmm. um, uh, within countries that mm -hmm. have to move, and I think an estimate that um, uh, 
there were over 20 million um, uh, climate IDPs uh, last year, and uh, and the numbers could be in the hundreds of millions by by a decade from from, from now or by, mm -hmm. by 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 mid-century. But I think the the other piece of that so so there's the operational aspect of um, how to meet needs of you know specific refugee communities at this point. The overarching uh, goal, though, still is that I think through adaptation mechanisms, uh, the estimates of IOM and others is that you could greatly reduce the number of IDPs that are um, uh, that would actually face those consequences um, uh, through better, you know, early warning mm -hmm. systems, a kind of a whole a whole range of other uh, adaptation initiatives that is the reason we're increasingly trying mm -hmm. to provide kind of a higher um, uh, kind of more emphasis on what those needs are. That that was what the kind of the global goal on adaptation right. is all about, which is going to also be um, hammered out over the next year. Um, the President Biden's announcement on doubling the U.S. commitment yes. to adaptation, but but all that is is in large is in is in part to mm. be able to address the issue of of climate migration, mm. and then and then next year we kind of touched on this question a little bit. Next year's COP is looking to be like it will be more consequential mm. on several of these issues, clearly on loss and damage, yes. but also on the global goal on adaptation on climate finance, and most importantly, it'll be the first global stock take where countries report back on- Are we actually meeting our goals? Exactly, where, right. where we are headed okay. on, their, on their NDCs. Very interesting. And so this kind of effort at, um, <laughs> at, at self-accountability is a really important one. Right. And all of this, the mechanics of much of these things will be worked out over the That's next year, hopefully culminating yeah. uh, in Dubai next year. Yeah, you and I have been to many pledging conferences. No one follows up to to see if we're actually meeting our promises. It's the so, implementation so piece that's, yeah. a, that's important. And interestingly, Secretary Kerry talked about this COP from the very outset. Uh, he gave the first major speech on it in Cairo in February as uh, about implementation plus. It was mm -hmm. always known that this was going to be less glamorous sure. in terms of like making sure. these commitments and more, what are you actually doing? I think one of the things that came out of this COP is that implementation ties into all these other issues. It ties into environmental mm -hmm. justice. It ties into adaptation. It ties into um, uh, increasingly the loss and damage mm -hmm. agenda. And so it's hard to uh, to look at it discreetly without getting into kind of all these other aspects as well. Yeah, no, this is great. I'm, Dan, I've really enjoyed hearing your insights on COP27 specifically, but more broadly. I think I want to I wrap up our discussion with some bigger picture sort of uh, thoughts from you. You know, young people around the world really have been a powerful voice in the fight against climate change. And South Asia, we talk about the youth bulge all the time. These are countries the vast majority of young people, um, and this is their future, mm -hmm. right? So what advice are you giving, uh, or would you give to these massive youth populations across South Asia? I mean, there are initiatives like International Climate Change University proposed by Sri Lanka, um, you know, if it had the right investments, but there are youth who care about the future of their country. They're less worried about other immediate conflict, but they know the climate conflict is coming um, and what advice do you give them in terms of how they can work together, how they can mobilize, but how they can have their voices heard in this debate? Uh, first of all, I 
I think everybody in the climate community welcomes the the youth voice in this mm. because it's so important, because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with this mess over the course of their mm -hmm. lives um, and continue to try to mitigate it as, as best as possible. I don't know if there's a single answer to mm. what that means, but um, but it's certainly a kind of encouraging and amplification of those voices. Um, I understand you know, the allure of Greta Thunberg and sure. others, and, and sure. I think she has really um, managed to focus global attention on this in a very unique way. On the other hand, and I can understand why she you know, refers to events like COP as more, mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. It seems like it's just more, more long-term talking. Yes. And, and yet, I don't know of another mm. vehicle that would provide the opportunity to engage in these ways. And so I'd rather use what we have mm -hmm. and try to make it more effective and efficient and ensure that those voices are part of this um, than try to devise something mm -hmm. new. I mean, this has now been going on for close to... 30 years, and uh, we need to try to continue to make sure that it is, um, that it has impact. Um, but, uh, but starting from scratch on something else, I don't, I don't see being right. efficient. So whether it's um, elevating youth voices at these COPs, um, which uh, we certainly try to do, and I know Secretary Kerry always uh, makes an effort to uh, meet with the kind of youth activists there, whether it's empowering youth through U.S. initiatives, and there mm -hmm. was something announced by President Biden on youth initiatives there. But I think, I think particularly in some of these key countries, so places uh, in the region, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, and others, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that um, there's a platform given given to these voices, whether it's through an educational institution, right. whether it's it's uh, through protesting, whether it's through running pilot projects, mm -hmm. um, but um, but we need to ensure that um, that this demographic is a is a core part mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of the discourse um, yeah. because they're going to be the ones that will have to implement um, uh, or deal with the consequences if we don't act effectively in the next few years. Mm. Lastly, I, I want to, you know, you mentioned the U.S. coming back into Paris was really welcomed around the world, both at Glasgow, Sharm el-Sheikh. The U.S. has played a leadership role, especially since the beginning of the Biden administration, to really tackle climate change in a holistic way. Um, the work you did with Special Envoy Kerry is testament to that. But, I mean, what is the longer-term vision? How can the United States be working with South Asia in particular, but countries in the global south? What do you see as, as the future of this, and how can we be better facilitating uh, this work in the region? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, um, you know, I think that, that U.S. leadership on this over the last uh, almost two years since being in the Biden administration has been enormously consequential. Mm. Um, I think that it, it, we're not in great shape now. As I said, we're already <laughs> at 1.1C right. rise. The estimates are that we were, um, uh, that we're currently on a trajectory of kind of 2.4 to 2.8, depending on uh, the analysis. But coming into 2021, it looked like we were well over three, three and a half. And I think the actions that President Biden and the administration took from day one, including rejoining Paris on uh, day one, um, have made a significant difference. Uh, showing that we're walking the talk in our own nationally mm -hmm. determined contribution that we announced last year, where we committed to um, 
uh, cutting emissions 50 to 52 percent by 2030 to try to be on track for a net zero by, by mid-century was critically important. Mm -hmm. But just as important as putting out that NDC was passing the IRA recently mm. and showing that we actually would put the funding and assistance into, um, into the effort to meet our, those, those 2030 mm -hmm. goals. Um, but I think through any number of efforts, through marshalling the rest of the uh, global community around 1.5, mm -hmm. through holding the major um, economies forum, which are effectively the major emitters as well, mm -hmm. um, through quadrupling you know, climate finance, through IRA, through infrastructure, through Kigali, I mean, through any number of things, we've, we've really helped lead it. There is certainly a concern heard around the world that you know, what happens if the pendulum swing the, uh, the political pendulum swings back and mm -hmm. um, uh, the a next, the next administration uh, takes us back out of Paris uh, mm -hmm. and does a range of other things. I think that at this point, there is a degree of future proofing in all mm -hmm. this. And in part, this is also the reason why it's mm -hmm. so important that the private sector is so engaged. Right. Um, the funding is now there to help galvanize and mm -hmm. move us, and we have to continue that process. But it's also going to be important to ensure that there's a lot of other leadership out right, there. Right. Um, and so state and local efforts are enormously important. And in mm -hmm. a place like um, Brazil, where you couldn't get good federal, sure. you know, significant federal action, to still try to do it at the provincial level was, was very important. Um, and you see many models like that. Uh, and then obviously the, 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 the private sector as well, which looks at the ability to both um, make money and be helping on the road to a, uh, to a net zero future through, through renewables. Um, I think we'll have to continue to, uh, to leverage, to adapt, um, or if necessary, to create the new kind of regional architecture to best incentivize this. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in a place like South Asia, whether that's increased um, uh, bilateral efforts between the U.S. and a range of these countries mm -hmm. or between the EU and others, um, whether it's multilateral efforts or most importantly, I think, are the, are the regional efforts mm -hmm. um, that we can then try to support and empower in a range of ways. And then I, I think the really critical piece is finding the finance and matching it with right. the needs in many of these places. Right. So again, trying to tap that from a whole variety of sources, whether it's through global climate funds, whether it's um, uh, through... Um, you know, specific initiatives mm -hmm. of other countries in the region or mm -hmm. others uh, elsewhere, but continuing to demonstrate that we can implement and operationalize the commitments already made and match resources to needs will be, I think, the, the, the area of most focus, particularly an area like, like South Asia. Well, thank you so much. Ambassador Dan Feldman, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about this. And it's such an interesting and, you know, developing area we want to continue to check back in with you and hopefully there are benchmarks that we're hitting by the next uh, the next cop i want to thank all of you online for joining usip today to talk about climate change cop 27 and south asia we hope you'll join us again online to continue our discussion of all things south asia so thanks so much thank you thank you dan thank you for listening to this event if you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.